Good morning. It's good to be with you all today. As uh, many of you may know, uh, Pastor Chitty is in Orlando. Um, he is not performing this week at Fine Arts, um, although he would win. Um, he, is, uh, he is at uh, General Council uh, down there. About every other year, they, uh, they welcome senior uh, leaders to come, and he's down there for this week. Uh, he is taking his family down there also that they could visit a guy named Mickey, and um, we, uh, we pray for their safe return. So um, really excited for them. We'd encourage you to, uh, to pray for them and all of our students throughout the week. Uh, it is a busy week and a good week, um, but there is a lot that happens and can transpire. And so uh, we just ask you to, uh, uh, to cover them in prayer. This morning, if you have your Bible, we're going to be in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 9. And uh, here in just a moment, I'm going to read the entirety of the chapter. Uh, it's not too awful long, but before we do that, I want to kind of I want to kind of set the stage for what we're about to uh, jump into. This moment in biblical history is when David has risen to the pinnacle of his kingship. Okay, uh, David has uh, overcome his greatest uh, nemesis, Saul. Uh, Saul is now dead, who was the king before David. His son, Jonathan, is also dead. And so David has taken the throne. Uh, David has really taken a nation that was kind of broken in a sense. There was a lot of infighting between the 12 tribes of Israel. So David has kind of unified the nation. He has uh, really rallied the people. There is, uh, there's victory. He's conquered all the enemies that are um, surrounding Israel. He's brought about a level of prosperity. There is excitement. There's momentum across the kingdom. There's unity. Um, there is great hope for the future in this moment. Like I said, it's at the top of David's kingship. This is uh, the greatest moments, years of his life when he is living at the greatest levels of success. And as he gets to this moment, he is relaxing one day and something comes to his mind. It was a conversation that he had had years before with his closest friend named Jonathan. Now, for context and perspective, uh, it's important to understand that King Saul was the father of Jonathan, and Jonathan had another son named Mephibosheth, which we'll talk about in a moment. But what's important to remember is that though King Saul had a son named Jonathan, the best friend of Jonathan was David, who was the greatest enemy of King Saul. It's like reality TV in the scriptures, okay? Um, there is a lot of what is going on in this moment. But then David, as I said, wakes up one day. He ponders this conversation for a moment. And then the scripture picks up in verse 1. We'll read together. The Bible says that one day David asked, is there anyone in Saul's family who's still alive? Anyone to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? He summoned a man named Ziba, who had been one of Saul's servants. Are you Ziba? The king asked. Yes, sir, I am, Ziba replied. The king then asked him, is anyone still alive from Saul's family? If so, I want to show God's kindness to them. So Ziba replied, yes, one of Jonathan's sons is still alive, but he's crippled in both of his feet. 
Now, Mephibosheth is um, a character in this story that was the son of Jonathan. Jonathan and his father Saul died in battle on the very same day. And so as the king died and the next person in line to the throne had died on the same day when word made it to the next one who should have been in line for the throne, Mephibosheth, the grandson of the king, all of a sudden, the king's family is frazzled. They, in their minds, and rightly so, they think if the king is now dead and the next in line is now dead, surely they're coming for us. And so uh, the handmaiden that was taking care of Mephibosheth as a young boy, he was about the age of five, the Bible says that she picks him up and in haste she runs out the door and in her running out the door she trips, she drops Mephibosheth and we're not really sure what happens. We don't know if uh, it was a spinal cord injury and he was partly paralyzed. We don't know if he broke both of his legs and they just, they, they weren't set right properly and so they, they grew in kind of a dysfunction. We're not sure what happened, but he was ultimately crippled in both of his feet. And so Ziba says this, and the king says, well, where is Mephibosheth? And Ziba told him, in Lodabar. So David sent for him and brought him. His name was Mephibosheth. I'm not going to make you pronounce that because I don't want extreme embarrassment to uh, fill the room. So he was Jonathan's son and Saul's grandson. When he came to David, he bowed low to the ground in deep respect. David said, greetings, Mephibosheth. And he replied, I am your servant. Don't be afraid, David said. I intend to show kindness to you because of my promise to your father. I will give you all the property that once belonged to your grandfather Saul, and you will eat here with me at the king's table. Mephibosheth bowed respectfully and exclaimed, Who is your servant that you should show such kindness to a dead dog like me? And then the king summoned Ziba and he said, I have given Saul's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him now. But Mephibosheth, Saul's grandson, will now eat here at my table. And Ziba replied, yes, my lord, the king, I am your servant. I will do all that you have commanded. And from that time on, Mephibosheth ate regularly at David's table like one of the king's own sons. Mephibosheth had a son named Micah. And from then on, all the members of Ziba's household were Mephibosheth's servants. And Mephibosheth, who was crippled in both feet, lived in Jerusalem and ate regularly at the king's table. Now, Father, this morning as we open this precious scripture, my prayer is that the Spirit of the Lord will join us. My prayer, Lord, is that you will bring about comfort to those of us who need comfort. Um, my prayer is that you will bring conviction where conviction needs to be. But Father, more than anything, my prayer, Lord, is that you'll come through and you'll cleanse our minds, Lord, of false ideas and concepts about who you are as God. And I pray for a cleansing of your Holy Spirit, that Jesus would be elevated in all this and that you'd help us this morning. In the name of Jesus, amen. I'm not sure if you've watched the, uh, the news, I don't know, in the last like 20 years, but um, we seem to live in a land of extremes. And the most 
the most noticeable extreme is that of uh, politics. And there seems to be a lessening and a lessening of the middle ground, of people who can have uh, not extreme views, but can understand where both sides of each party is coming from and come to something that we call a compromise, something where views are, are blended and not as incredibly extreme. But, but the place that we live now, especially in a nation, is where if you are part of one political party, you do not really have the right to even a fraction or a sliver of a policy of the other party to agree with that. There's not really that liberty to say, well, I don't agree with them, but I kind of do like this one little thing that they suggest. You really don't even have that privilege anymore because once you do, your own party may be coming after you. Okay? And that's on both sides of the aisle. It doesn't really matter. There, there seemed to be this, this idea that if you even partially move away from this extreme, then you're a traitor. Then you're on the other side. And the reality is, is that sometimes there need to be extremes, right? Like you should, you should always drink Coke and never Pepsi, okay? That is an extreme that you should have. Um, there, there are some extremes that need to, but, but oftentimes our views need not be incredibly extreme because that is just not what life is all about. There is a, there is a great blending and a mixing uh, of our lives and, and even theologically this mentality of extremes can so easily creep into the church just as it has. And this is one of the reasons, one of the many reasons that I love our pastor so much is because he has taught us to think with balance. He's taught us to think in, in holistic terms regarding God, not just in things that we like or in things that we dislike about God. And, and so in the religious uh, circles, what, what we find is that there are sometimes people in regards to Christianity who oftentimes may view God or paint God in a portrait that makes God what I would consider incredibly soft and weak. He is, um, he is such a gracious God that it doesn't matter how you live. Um, it doesn't matter if you ever repent or confess your sins or admit to others that you've been wrong. It leads down a slippery slope that we ultimately would call universalism, which is where in the end, God is so good that really everybody is going to be saved. Everybody's going to make it to heaven because God is just that good. The other end of the spectrum, you've got uh, what I would consider the irreligious who, and this isn't all, but, but many irreligious people consider the God of the Bible uh, extreme on the other end of the spectrum, that he's incredibly harsh, that he's incredibly judgmental, that his love uh, does not really extend to humankind, but he's kind of self-absorbed. There was a guy by the name of uh, Richard Dawkins. Some of you uh, may have uh, read some of him. Uh, I would not encourage reading him, but uh, he wrote a book called The God Delusion. And he is a profound thinker. God has given him a great gift that, in my opinion, he's abused of intellect um, because he is a staunch atheist. And in his book, The God Delusion, he, he really attacks all religion um, but he really goes after Christianity. He really goes after Judaism. And um, I, 
I want to read to you a portion of what he said about the God of the Old Testament. He writes, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction. Now, that's the first place he went wrong, considering that God is fiction. But he continues, he says, jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, philosophical, megalomaniac, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully is the God of the Old Testament. These are two very extreme views of one being. And we live in a nation that has really elevated both of these things. In the religious circles, we see this elevation or portrayal of God oftentimes, and not in every church and not every, every religious person, but, but oftentimes is this, this kind of soft, weak version of who God is. And then in, in secular, especially like university and things, they'll elevate this idea of God that is just incredibly harsh and judgmental and full of wrath. And if somebody were to come to me and say, well, how do you reconcile these two? I would simply look at them and say, it's neither of these things. And what I would say is that most people, when they pick up the scriptures and, and without the submission to the Holy Spirit and without the assistance of the Holy Spirit, when they read about who God is, it will lead to disaster every single time. It'll lead to disaster every single time. And this is why. Because humans have this, this incredible uh, tact of being able to find what we are looking for. And so if I already have a predisposed view of who God is, and I am looking for that, those elements in the scripture, I'm going to find those elements in the scripture. And if I have a view that, that, that God wants me to be able to do whatever I want to do, and there's never consequences, and, and God never wants anything uh, uh, you know, bad to happen or whatever, uh, then I'm going to find those elements and those slivers in the scriptures just as well. We have this idea that if we will just look for, for, for it, we can find it. I remember one time I, uh, I, saw, a, um, I saw a tweet a lady uh, posted, and she said, uh, she said, my third car accident in six months walked away without a scratch. You can't tell me God doesn't have a plan for me. Somebody replied to her tweet and said, a plan for you, it sounds like he's trying to kill you. <laughs> now, what's the difference? It's perspective. She had this idea, God will never allow me to suffer. God, God only wants you know, the best for me, and he does want the best for us, but God will allow us to suffer when you're talking about the truest version of the holistic God of, of Scripture. Now, the other lady had this view that maybe God's trying to kill you. And, and this, is my, this is the point of what I'm trying to say. I'm trying to say, regardless of what you're looking for, if you try hard enough, you can paint that picture. 
I remember when we, uh, last, last summer, we, we took a trip to Israel, and um, it was unbelievable. If you get the opportunity, I think we're going next May. They're going. I'm not going to be able to go this time. But if you get a chance to go, you need to go. Um, we were at the, uh, the Church of the Immaculate Conception, and, and we go in, and all over the room, there are these portraits of the Virgin Mary. And there are dozens, literally dozens, and they are sent from nations all around the world that have Christian influence in, in those nations. And they're beautiful. I have a photo of the one that, that we sent from the U.S., but there's one from, uh, from, from Japan, and there are some from the Middle East, and there are some from Africa. There's one from the U.S., and as I started walking around, I started noticing something about each of these photos. The, the, the portrait of Mary from Japan did not look like a young lady from the Middle East. She looked like a woman from Japan. And in each of these nations, they portrayed Mary through their own lens of what they thought she should look like. And can I tell you that, that in, in, in the culture that we live, if we are not careful, I'm not so concerned with us breaking the commandment that talks about making false idols of God. You don't see people walking around making false idols. But what you do see is people walking around making false ideas about who God is, which is equally as, as, as simple. And so what I would say to us is that, that a person, the scripture says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, that, that the natural person is not able to understand the things of God because the things of God are spiritually discerned. And so for any of us to pick up the scripture without submitting ourselves to the Holy Spirit and the assistance of the Holy Spirit, we can so easily be led astray. And so my contention is simply this, is that when we do that, we must embrace not only the parts of God in scripture that we prefer or that we do not prefer or what builds our case for the agenda that we have, but we must embrace God for who he is, not for who we want God to be. Okay. When we do this, when you examine the scriptures with the assistance of the spirit and the submission of the spirit, what you begin to see is God communicate himself, who he is to people over and over and over again. In the book of Exodus is the first time we really get the whole picture of, of who God is as, as far as him describing himself to the human race. And this is what the Bible says. He describes himself to Moses and he says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generations. I think it's fascinating when we see this. As a matter of fact, this is the most repeated scripture in all of the Old Testament. It is repeated, at least in, in some variation, more than 32 times in the Old Testament alone as God is describing himself to the human race. And I find it fascinating that God, as he's describing himself, the things that he speaks to first and the things that he speaks to at a secondary level. What does he speak to first? 
the kindness and the graciousness and the mercy and the long-suffering and the steadfast, enduring love that he has. And then he tags on the end that part that many people don't enjoy is the fact that God is still in the fullness of his love. There is an element of justice, divine justice, that fills his being in who he is. And it doesn't matter at some point whether we choose to embrace it or not. It is who God is, and it is our job to submit to who he is. And so what I want to do this week, and, uh, and actually next week, I'll, I'll be here with you. I'm so sorry to break the news. Uh, Pastor will be returning next week. Um, so if attendance is way down next week, I know who you are. Um, <laughs> For the next couple of weeks, what I want to do is kind of unpack these ideas of, of grace, of mercy, of divine justice. I, I want to I help us uh, understand the, the differentiation between these things because there is a difference in these things, and it's important for us to, to understand these things. And so um, this morning, just for like a, a working understanding so we're all on the same page, I just kind of want to give you some working definitions of the, these three categories. Mercy is when God doesn't give us the thing that we deserve. When God does not give us the thing that we deserve. So you are going down the interstate and you are speeding. You're exceeding the speed limit by 31 miles per hour. You get pulled over and the officer lets you off with a warning. He has just given you mercy. He has not given you what you deserve. Okay. Grace is when God gives us some, something that we do not deserve and that we didn't earn. It is when God gives us something that we did not earn and we definitely do not deserve. This is when you're going down the interstate, you're exceeding the speed limit by 31 miles per hour, you get pulled over by a police officer, he gives you a ticket, and somebody else pays for that ticket. They've given you grace. They've given you something you didn't deserve. You broke the law. You deserve to pay the ticket, but he's given you, somebody has given you grace and they paid for your ticket. The idea of justice excuse me, judgment is when God allows us to experience divine justice. This is when you're going down the interstate, you're exceeding the speed limit by 31 miles per hour, you get pulled over by a police officer, they give you a ticket, and you have to pay it, much like my wife did <laughs> the weekend of our engagement when she was exceeding the speed limits by 31 miles per hour, doing 101 and a 70. Yeah, she's in the nursery, get after her, okay? Now, that is, that is the idea of, of justice. Justice was served. Did she deserve it? Yeah, she deserved it. Did she have to pay for it? Well, we had to pay for it. So you understand that, that these three elements all are very much in sync. It's very difficult. Hear me say this. It's very difficult to separate these three elements of, of God's nature. That's what our human lives, we like to compartmentalize things, and we like to do that. But that's, these three things are very much tied together. And it's very rare that you will see an instance where these aren't kind of, of meshed together. 
And so today what I want to do is I want to, I want to unpack for us a little bit about the grace and the graciousness, the kindness, the compassionate nature of who God is through this story of uh, Mephibosheth. And so um, I, want to, uh, I want to just kind of walk through this portion of scripture. And I want to help us understand that, that there are ways that, that God expects for us to be compassionate and gracious people with people who absolutely do not deserve the kindness that we are trying to offer them. When you look in the scripture, you find that David, at this point in his life, at this point in his kingship, you understand that most kings are not looking for someone to be kind to. He is on a roll. You know what I'm saying? He has conquered all the surrounding lands. Most kings in that day, if they have the ability to conquer the surrounding lands, they are going as far as they can go to continue conquering. Kings in that day are known for when they would overcome a land to take kings or people into king's lineage and bring them into their palace. But when they get them into their palace to cut off their thumbs so that they are not able to function like a normal human being to cut off their feet at the ankles so that they can't walk appropriately and to chain them under the king's table so that they can feed off of the crumbs of the king's family. Just enough to survive, but just enough to be miserable. That is the, that's the character of the kings during this era. But David steps up on the scene and he decides that instead of punishing King Saul's uh, uh, family lineage, that what he is going to do is he is going to show kindness to this young man, Mephibosheth. He's not stingy with the grace that he's been given. David understands that all that he has, he has not earned. He knows that all that he has has been graced to him by the goodness of God. And so he sends for Mephibosheth who lives in the land of Lodabar. And when you begin to do a little bit of research and a little bit of digging, you find that Lodabar, the, the name of the, the place where he lived, is identified as the land of nothingness, which is so symbolic of Mephibosheth's life up to that point. So as David is searching for somebody to give grace to, in the midst of this search, it's important to understand that David does not discriminate when he finds that person to give grace to. Now, Mephibosheth, his name, when you break it down, the last part of his name, Bosheth, the, interpre the literal interpretation of the word Bosheth is the word shame. This young man, I couldn't figure it out in, in the study and research. His name was either changed from Mephibosheth at some point in his life, or it was changed to Mephibosheth at some point in his life. And so this is what, what I want you to understand. I'm not sure which one is better or if there is one that's better, because at the end of the day, they either had to change his name from shame or they changed his name to shame because of his condition. And so David, as he considers and he ponders Mephibosheth, he understands that, that this guy is handicapped. He's physically handicapped. He understands that he's really living as a fugitive in a land of nothingness. But even all of this stuff does not steer David away from showing great compassion to Mephibosheth. 
He, he, un, he does not unjustly discriminate against this young man. I find it interesting that human beings have this ability to kind of compartmentalize. You know what I mean? We have, we have layers of things in our lives. And, and as, as relationships go, um, we, we tend to compartmentalize, and, and it's a normal thing. We have our immediate family, and then we have, you know, people who aren't our immediate family, but we wish they were. They're like our closest friends. And then we have the, the family of believers, and then we have people who aren't believers, and then we have people who are kind of on the outskirts. And what I find is that as, as God reveals the kindness that, that we're to show others uh, throughout this, these events— is I find that these layers of exposing grace to people, they look very different, you know? And one thing I've found just through introspection is that those in the, in the closest level, in the, in the closest circle of our relationships, those are often the people that it's most difficult to show grace towards. It's often most difficult to show grace toward those in the inner and those on the very far end. Somehow, for some reason, these in the middle section right here, we don't have that much trouble showing grace to, right? So, for example, um, I am a very, I, I try to be, and it's a personality flaw, it's not, a, it's not a great thing, but I'm a very punctual person. It drives me crazy to be late anywhere, okay? And furthermore, it drives me crazy when, when others that I care about that are close to me, including my family, are late. It drives me crazy. Okay, because I feel like they're a representation of me. And if they are late, it is a reflection of me that I'm late. Okay, again, it's a flaw. Okay, I get it. But what I find is that I can grow incredibly frustrated with those in my immediate family when they are late for an appointment or late to church or, or whatever it is. I grow incredibly frustrated at this level. But when we get out to this level of people that I really, you know, I'm friends with or really, if they show up late, I'm like, man, don't worry about it. It's not a big deal. <laughs> now on the inside, no, I'm kidding. So, so, but at this level, I'm like super frustrated. I don't understand why I get so frustrated here and out here it doesn't really bother me, okay? But what we have to learn is that we have to be a people that extend the grace of God, the kindness, the compassion of God, even to people that absolutely do not deserve it. I'm going to tell you, man, the, the church has the greatest potential to help every human life. But the church also has the greatest potential to hurt a human life. And unfortunately, from time to time, people are hurt in churches. It's, it's just, it's what happens in families. And in spiritual families, it's no different. Sometimes people get hurt. And sometimes people don't deserve a second chance. But neither did Mephibosheth. Neither did the woman who was caught in the act of adultery. Neither did the countless people throughout Scripture. And let me just say this, neither do I. And neither do you. But yet there are people in our lives that continue to give us chance after chance after chance. Not holding over our head, not holding us hostage, but freely giving the grace that they have received, freely uh, giving that out as well. I'll tell you this, we've got, we've got to figure out as a church how we're going to deal with people that we disagree with. 
We've got to, and when I say a church, I mean the universal church. We've got to figure out as Christianity, how are we going to deal with people that we disagree with? We've got to figure out how we're going to deal with people that are homeless. We've got to figure out how we're going to deal with orphans and with widows. We've got to, at, at, at this level, folks on this level, not the innermost, but, but the outermost people, we've got to figure out how we're going to deal with like refugees and immigrants and people of other religions. We've got to figure out how we're going to deal with them. Because if we treat these people a certain way, we must treat these people a certain way. It's the love of God that is being projected through us, not in agreement necessarily, of their position on things. Um, a few weeks ago, or I don't know how long ago it was, but my family and I, we went to uh, a restaurant and we were eating and, and a homeless man uh, approached and he asked if we could help him or whatever. And so we bought a meal and, and um, we sat down with him, or he sat down with us, I guess. And uh, sat down and he started eating. I was just hearing his story and just listening to him, trying, you know, to, to be kind. He had just, man, his story was horrendous. I mean, it, my heart broke so deeply for him. And so I decided we're going we're gonna to give him, we're going to get him a gift card. You know, we're at Chipotle and, and it's good food, you know. And so I went and got him a couple gift cards and, and we went back to give it to him. And when I presented it to him, he was almost indignant about it. He was almost like, like he was frustrated with me. Not that I had given him uh, a gift card, but he was frustrated with me that I had given him a gift card instead of cash. He said this to me. In the moment, the flesh was alive and well. And I was just internally, I was just like, how dare you, you know? And, and so I really tried to submit to the Lord and just, Lord, I want to say something. I'm not going to say something, you know, kind of thing. And, and, as, I, and I, as I started thinking about it, I thought, I thought, Corey, what did you, I mean, not that he was a terrible person. I, I pray for him and, and God bless him. I'm not saying, but I'm saying in my mind, I thought, Corey, what was your expectation? What was your expectation? Why, why did you do this? Were you expecting like a hug or a thank you or something like that? Which is fine. There's nothing wrong with the expectations. But the point was, is that after some, some reflection, I had to come to a place where I understood that I did this for him, but I did not, I did not do this unto him. I did it unto the Lord. So, so my point in, in saying all that is this, is that as we begin to deal with people that are like the Mephibosheths, the fugitives, the broken, the crippled, the less fortunate, we have got to keep a mindset that says, I'm not doing that. I'm doing it for them, but I'm not doing it unto them. I'm doing it as unto the Lord. And however they respond is between them and God. But how I respond is between me and God. And so we have to, we have to really, when we go to give grace, we've got to minimize our expectation in what we expect back. Because true grace doesn't expect back. True grace is given and given freely. And so as we work through all these things, um, we've got to figure it out. And what I'm not saying, I'm not saying to be irresponsible. That's not what I'm saying, okay? I understand that there are some times that, you know, we need to, we need to be, always be led by the Spirit. And sometimes we need to give to, you know, a person who may be homeless or down on their luck or, or whatever it is. 
but there are some times that we shouldn't. All I'm saying is this. I'm not saying be irresponsible and always just give, 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 give. But I'm saying don't let responsibility be a roadblock between you and giving other people grace. Does that make sense? Okay. So as we encounter people and we walk through this life like David, we need to be a people that take a step back and we need to say, who needs help in this moment? Who needs a second chance? Who needs a leg up? Who needs some help financially? Who needs what? And so as David is searching for Mephibosheth, he finds him and he is not uh, discriminative towards him. But David also understands that he has to work in order to give this young man grace. You understand that this wasn't like a hyper-emotional, in-the-moment decision where David woke up and he had just had a good round of golf and he was like, you know what? Let's bless somebody. Where's Mephibosheth? It wasn't this high-octane moment where he felt like this and he has to do this. This was a well-thought-out, a calculated understanding. David had counted the cost because David understood this is going to require resources of me. This is going to, perhaps it's, either, it's even going to affect my reputation as the way that other nations judge me, that I am helping the weak when I should be destroying him. David counted the cost and understood that this is a thing, given somebody else grace, it may affect me on multiple levels, but it's something that I have to do. There are a lot of scholars that question David's motive in bringing in Mephibosheth. They say, well, the only reason David did this is because he wanted to have Saul's family under wraps. He wanted to know where they were and what they were doing. Listen to me. Number one, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that David wanted to show God's kindness to him. Number two, David didn't have to do anything. He wasn't obligated to Saul's family. He could have wiped the lineage off the face of history. He didn't have to do anything. But David chose that he wanted to show God's kindness in this moment, but he understood that it would cost him something. And let me tell you this. When we offer grace to other people, it's always going to cost me something. It's always going to cost something. And if it doesn't cost us something, it may not be true grace. So as we understand that David had to work to give grace, we also understand that he didn't just work to give grace, but he worked to give excessive grace. Think about this. It's not a stretch to think that Mephibosheth, up to the age of five when his grandfather and his father died, that his grandfather might have been whispering in his ear all that he felt about King David. It's not a stretch to believe that King Saul was manipulating Mephibosheth's mind, understanding that one day Mephibosheth would grow up and he may need to make war with David. King Saul may have been planting lies, deceit, and ill thoughts within the mind of Mephibosheth. Now, we don't see that in scripture, but it's not a stretch understanding the character of Saul to see how he may do that. And so you've got this potential situation where you've got a young man, and David's got to know this. Mephibosheth now is about the age of 21 or 22 years old. He's a grown man. And David has to come to a place where he understands, I'm either going to show this guy grace, or I'm just going to go all the way out. I'm going to wipe his family off the map. But David doesn't just show grace. He shows excessive grace. Listen to what he does. He brings him into the family. He gives him property. 
He gives him, he gives him a purpose. He gives him prestige. He gives him servants. But can I tell you more than all of those things? He gives Mephibosheth a place at his own table. Chuck Swindoll, in his brilliant storytelling ability, paints a picture and he says, can you imagine seeing King David approach the table for dinner one night and he sits down and he looks and he sees his beautiful daughter Tamar and he looks over and he sees Absalom in his young age uh, with his long flowing hair and he looks over and sees Solomon in all of his, the glory of his wisdom. And then he looks and he sees an open seat and all of a sudden he hears the door crack open. And he hears crawling on the ground his next son, Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth crawls up into the chair. He sits down. And then David finally looks and he says, now my family is complete. It is a mind bender of a situation to think that a man could take his enemy's grandchild, his greatest enemy's grandchild, and now treat him like a son. Grace is incredibly excessive. If there's anything, if there's anything I hate, it's, it's half-hearted, halfway done stuff. You know one thing I hate more than anything, the half clap? I hate that. I hate that so much. Somebody just did it. I hate that so much, okay? Golf. Well, man, if you're gonna celebrate, do it! If you're gonna, if you're gonna, there you go. If you're gonna, if you're gonna clap to a song, do it. How, it drives me crazy. It's the reasons because it's a half-hearted approach. What we see here in in the story of Mephibosheth is not half-hearted by any stretch of the imagination. It, if anything, it is an extreme example of grace that David chooses to give. But I'm going to tell you this, David could not have done this. I don't believe that David could have done all of this great stuff for Mephibosheth until David came to understand the greatness of grace that God had showed to him. You understand, David, listen to me. As a young boy, when a prophet comes and declares you anointed as a king of Israel, as a young boy, that's not anything that you've earned. It's not something you've worked for, or anything that you deserve. And when you go to war with a giant and you are given victory over that giant with a rock, that's not because you've earned it. It's because the sovereignty of God has allowed it. And when you have been survived through a king and a nation, literally an entire nation pursuing your life, it's not because you've earned it. And when, when you rise to influence and power in kingship in this day, David knew this is not because I've earned it. He's been faithful, but he has not earned it. It has been something that he has been given. When David knew the depths of his brokenness, when he came to terms with the depths of his sin and his rebellion against God, that was the moment. He said, I know I don't deserve this when he sits at the highest success point of his kingdom. This is the moment, and I believe it's because he had a moment of reflection with the Lord. And I believe that he began to understand the weight and the gravity of his own depravity. And he understood as he looked around, he said, Lord, I don't deserve any of this. I haven't earned any of this. How can I reciprocate this to somebody else? And then we see him 
bring in Mephibosheth. Now, I'll say that I think this is an incredible reminder of our need to be gracious to one another and to extend grace to those who don't deserve it. But, but in, the reality is this, is that at this church, um, you, you probably don't need a sermon like that. And the reason I'm going to say is because I've never been a part of a church as compassionate and caring and generous and, and gracious as, as you are. I've never been a part of anything like this. And so what I find oftentimes, though, is that though we may not really need, it's always a good reminder, we've always got margin to improve in how we you know, give grace to others. What I found so often with good-hearted Christians is not their lack of ability to extend grace, but their lack of ability to receive grace. I think it's important as we look at these events I think it's important that we see ourselves as David in this story, giving grace to others and doing all these things. But can I tell you more than that, and, and probably before that, we've got to see ourselves as Mephibosheth. Broken individuals that have received grace that we can never earn from a king who allows us incredible access to his throne. The great Martin Luther is a prime example of this, not Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, however, Martin Luther King Jr. was named after the reformer of the 1500s, Martin Luther. Um, many of you know the story, so I'm, I'm just run through it real quick. But Martin Luther was, uh, he was a young man, he was going to law school, and one day on his way into class, uh, there was a thunderstorm, lightning struck near him and almost killed him. And in the heat of the moment, he declared, Lord, if you'll save me and not kill me, I'll devote my life to you as a monk. Very drastic moment, um, emotional decision. And so Martin Luther stayed true to his word and he went into monkhood and he was an incredibly, he was raised in the Roman uh, Catholic system, which was very, in that day, very organized around works. And it was always about how you can give more or do more in order to earn grace from God and grace from the saints and different things like that. And so uh, Martin Luther was raised in a system that was all about how much he could do in order to earn the graces of God. And and he was incredibly, he, he was such a peculiar person. You should look up the story of how he and his wife kind of eloped. It is so bizarre. But Martin Luther was such an intense person. There, there are documented um, uh, sources that, that talk about nights after Martin Luther would sin or he would fail against the Lord, whatever, uh, that he would go out in the middle, in the height of winter, and he would declothe himself down to his underwear, and he would lay in the snow for hours at a time as a means of self-discipline to punish himself for the sins that he had committed. They're, they're documented sources. His friends would have to come the next morning and drag his almost lifeless body back in and, and to nurse him back to health. I mean, he was very intense and very uh, works-oriented and always wanted to live holy, but it was more about earning something from the Lord. As a matter of fact, it got so intense that the, the guy that he would go to confess and, uh, and uh, consult with, uh, he would go in. The guy said that there would be times where Martin Luther would confess up to six hours at a time every little thing that he felt 
that had offended the Lord. As a matter of fact, he said this, he said to Martin Luther, he said, if you expect Christ to forgive you, he was really fed up. He said, if you expect Christ to forgive you, come in with something to forgive. Murder, blasphemy, adultery, instead of these silly little things. You know what the reality is? The reality is that Martin Luther was looking, he had painted a portrait of God as a very hard and heavy-handed man whom he had to earn a right to sit at the table. But one day Martin Luther had an encounter with God through the scriptures in, in the book of Romans that says the just shall live by faith and not by works. And Martin Luther took that to heart. He has such an encounter with God and the grace of God and the goodness of God and understanding that he can never earn it, that he actually contested with the Roman Catholic Church he nailed what we call a 95 thesis, 95 questions that challenged the Roman Catholic Church. And I'll tell you this, today, he is the reason that we're not Catholic. We are Protestant, take the word Protestant, protestant, because he took the courage when he found out that the system was broken and that there's nothing that I could do to earn God's grace or love or merit. There's nothing that I could do except to accept it. And when he challenged that, he broke the back of the system and he created a reformation that we experience the fruit of today. And I thank God for that. But let me tell you this, a lot of people today that I, that I know, they are a lot like Martin Luther and obsess over their sins. They obsess. Now listen to me, I'm all about confession, okay? As a matter of fact, I don't think we probably confess enough. I think that we should confess in the same way that we count our blessings one by one. I think we need to have seasons where we confess every little sin that we can think of. But at the end of the day, it is not about me earning it or saying the right thing. It is about the extended grace of God through the blood of Jesus that saves me. That's all that it is. Okay? So, so we have got to become a people that become, well, I think we are so good at giving grace, but we've got to be a, become a good people at receiving grace. We got to be a people that say, I know I blew it. Listen, I know I blew it. Some of you blew it with your kids this morning. On the way in, some of you got in an argument with your spouse. Uh, listen to me. I get it. But it doesn't affect your worship when you get here because even on your best day, you don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. And so we've got to be a people that come to this understanding of God, you are so good. As Pastor always tells us. You could never love me. God will never love me any more. And God will never love me any less. Depending on how much God loves me. And it is the way that it is. And so I would just say this to us as, as I wrap this up. As much as this story is about extending grace, it's, it's the gospel in miniature. It's a miniature portrayal of the gospel. Think of it in these terms. David's relationship with Jonathan provides a place at the table for Mephibosheth, even in his broken condition. Father God's relationship with Jesus Christ provides a place at the table for me, even in my broken condition. It's the gospel in miniature. From the very beginning of the rebellion of the human race, God made a promise in Genesis 3, that he was going to come and he was going to redeem and he was going to send a Messiah. He was going to send a Savior and his grace would cover all of our sin. God not only does that, but he goes so far to search for us when we're not even looking 
for the grace of God. First John says, this is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. So not only did he pursue me, but he didn't discriminate when he found me. My brokenness never affected Jesus. Listen to me. I heard a preacher say one time, he said, listen, if you understood the depth of my brokenness, you probably wouldn't listen to me preach. But if I knew the depth of your brokenness, I probably wouldn't waste my time preaching. <laughs> listen. Listen. There is, a, there is a, a, a depth of brokenness that we all live with and through, but it never hinders the grace of God. As a matter of fact, he came to reconcile to repair, to restore those things. And so this is, this is the story of Mephibosheth is really the story of Jesus and of me. And not only did David pay a high price and count the cost, Jesus paid a high cost. The Bible says that the blood of Jesus is what was paid for the forgiveness of my sins, not something that's mere silver or gold but something that is of eternal worth. And when he showed me grace, it wasn't just grace, it was excessive grace. That God would decide in advance to adopt us into his family through Jesus Christ. That he would lavish on us the great love of God and that we should be called the children of God. Listen to me. This is why we call it a gospel. Gospel means good news. The good news is this. I'm Mephibosheth. I'm Mephibosheth. And listen, you look at that, you say, that's not good news. It means you're broken. Yes, but David, there is a David in Jesus. And Jesus has come to restore me even in my brokenness. Listen to me. As Psalm says, Psalm 136 says this. It says that God remembered me in my weakness. Listen, every person on this planet is rebellious, we are inept enemies of God, we are broken on every single level, and yet God, in his goodness, remembered us. And he said, I remember those kids living in a land of nothingness, and I want to do something for them. And I'm going to send my son, my son is going to sacrifice his life in their place. He is going to show them grace and give it to them without merit, without earning it, without doing anything for it. He is going to give it to them. And when he gives it to them, not only am I going to welcome them into my heaven, into my kingdom, into my palace, but I'm going to restore them. And I'm going to sup with them. And I'm going to bless them. And I'm going to reserve a seat at my table for them. And not only that, but I'm going to treat them as my own son or my own daughter. Listen to me. That's why we call it good news. Because I'm Mephibosheth. I'm broken and I'm desperately in need of help. Listen to me. It's not a bad thing. Some of you are probably not really, you probably expected to hear really encouraging. You're amazing and all this. And I believe all that. God bless you. Okay, but listen to me say this. Listen, it is so good. It is so good for me to remember my depravity. It's so good for me to remember my broken state. Not to put me down and to make me feel less than. Listen to me. I'm, on, I'm already on top of the mountain because of Jesus. 
But when I remember, when I remember my brokenness, I'm looking down the sheerness of the rocks and I'm saying, Woo! Thank you, Jesus. Okay? Because I understand the height from which Christ has brought me. There's a great level of appreciation and gratitude when I remember the depths of my condition and the depths of my brokenness. And so I'll say this. It's so good for me to remember because only when I remember can I relish in what God has done at the greatest level. It's when I remember that I can truly, that, that songs that say I couldn't earn it and I don't deserve it, but still you gave yourself away. It's, listen to me, it's only at that moment where we realize our truest condition that we can sing a song like that at its greatest level and potential. It's, it, it, and I'll furthermore say this. I believe that it's only when we realize and remember our condition and the goodness of God that we can freely give as we have freely received. Amen. This morning, will you stand with me really quickly? I am so late and I am so sorry. I'm going to blame it on Ryan for missing the key. <laughs> By the way, that would have been a perfect illustration. We all missed the key, am I right? But let me say this. Listen, especially if you're here and you are not a Christian. I hope that you will understand everything that I'm saying. Listen to me, this isn't fiction. This isn't a fairy tale. There's no truer reality than the fact that God loved you so much that he sent his son to die for you in your place so that you could be called a son and sit at the table. And I'm going to ask our ministry team to go ahead and come. And if, if you need to receive Christ, they will be glad to pray with you and help you. I'll be here to help you or whatever. But I want to say this, we want to pray for anybody that has any kind of needs, anything like that. But today I, I specifically want to say, if you've forgotten your place as a son or a daughter of the king, and it's just one of those moments, and you can sit in your seat or approach or whatever you want to go, if you've got to go, the Lord bless you, we understand. But perhaps this is one of those moments where you sit back and you say, Father, I am so reminded of my broken condition, and I just want to take a minute and relish in the grace of God. I want to relish in the fact that he will never cut me off from the table. I want to relish in the fact that we commune together, that you love me despite me. You love me because you are good, not because I'm good. Lord, I just want to soak in your goodness. Can we do that? So I'm going to, I'm going to pray for us. And if you've got to go, we, we love you and we'll see you next week, hopefully. Um, but uh, if, if you want to come or just sit where you are and receive, uh, we encourage that too. Father, we love you so much. Lord, we are so grateful for your goodness. We thank you that the grace of God is ours to behold. It's ours to receive as your sons and daughters. Now, Holy Spirit, I pray that you will come in a powerful way. I pray that you will remind us of your goodness. I pray that you will remove and rebuke the element of shame that has tried to attach itself to so many. Break its back, Lord, in this moment. And I pray that we will no longer walk in defeat or shame or doubt, but we will walk in the joy and the freedom of Jesus Christ, our Lord. So, Father, I pray for your blessing over your people today. 
in Christ's name. Amen, amen, and amen. The Lord bless you so much. We love you if you gotta go. If not, we welcome you to join us.